Father, it's with joy in our hearts that we've gathered this morning as we celebrate the great resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, what a privilege is ours to take our Bibles now and to further pursue our understanding of all that the resurrection explains in our lives. Father, I just pray that you would continue to grow us in a confidence of our salvation. Thank you for the reliability of your word historically. Thank you for how the Spirit uses your word and how the word in and of itself has a power and authority. And I just pray that we would worship you as we listen with an attitude of awe and humility to receive your word and allow it to speak to us. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. The name Lee Strobel has become quite well known in Christian circles today. He is a well-known author and pastor. It wasn't always so. Lee started his career as an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune back in the 70s. Lee wrote a book that has um, um, circulated widely entitled The Case for Easter. I'd like to read to you a story that he uses out of the introduction from his book, The Case for Easter. Lee Strobel writes, I picked up my phone at the Chicago Tribune and was assaulted by the sobbing, frantic voice of a distraught father. His 19-year-old daughter was missing, he said. She was a good girl, never in any trouble, not much more than an innocent child. And now she was gone. The police weren't helping. Could I, he asked, alert the city to her disappearance? Moved by his anguish, I began to pursue the story. But when I interviewed his daughter's friends and the police, a much different story emerged. Tragically, it turned out, she had been a drug addict, a petty criminal, the girlfriend of a gang member, and a part-time prostitute. When the police found her body a few days later, they determined that she had been the victim of a heroin overdose. I didn't have the heart to tell her father all the details I had learned about her lifestyle. He sincerely believed that she was an innocent child, but he had been wrong. His love for his daughter had blinded him. He had seen what he wanted to see, overlooking obvious clues that pointed in another direction. As a parent myself, I could hardly blame him for his wishful thinking. Strobel goes on to say, To me, an atheist at the time, this was an apt analogy for the mindset of the Christians that I knew. From my perspective, their faith blinded them to the real facts about Jesus, and they only saw what they wanted to see in him. Certainly, he was only a legend or a mere mortal at best. In their wide-eyed, parental-like gullibility, Christians sincerely believed that he rose from the dead and thus proved that he was the Son of God. But there was no doubt in my mind that they were sincerely wrong, just like that father. They had to be. As a reporter, I had seen lots of dead people, and none of them had ever come back to life. Christians could spin fanciful tales of an empty tomb, but they could never change the grim, absolute finality of death. 
Well, as I invite you to return to Luke chapter 24, I have a word for the atheist Lee Strobel, and it is this. There was no fanciful thinking on the part of the disciples when they watched their Lord and Master be nailed to the cross. In fact, they were devastated, they were delusional, they were disillusioned, and they were utterly disgusted. As the choir just sang a few minutes ago, I think the mindset of the disciples was very much, what about this kingdom? What about the thrones that we were promised, or they thought they were? What about overthrowing Rome and and establishing Israel to the glory of, of our warrior King David's era? In Luke chapter 24 that we read earlier for our scripture, I want to point out a couple things as a foundation to our message today as we look at what the resurrection explains in our life and faith. I want you to notice that as the women, and this is an account of the women, um, and all of the gospel accounts point out that it was the women who went early in the morning. They fully expected to find a sealed tomb. They had gone just out of their love and compassion. I guess in a way they just couldn't stay away. They did not expect to find the tomb open. They did not expect to find a risen Savior. And I'm sure that Mary did not expect in just a few hours to confuse her Lord with the gardener. To be able to touch his feet and to say, my Lord and my God. Lots of confusion. Lots of misunderstanding. And particularly on the part of the disciples, I want you to see what Luke makes no mistake about. They simply didn't believe in Jesus at this point. It is not like Lee Strobel sets up in his imagination as an atheist that Christians somehow just have a pie-in-the-sky faith and and somehow we just so want to believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ that that we convince ourselves that this old fable book, the Bible, is true. I want to show you this morning that the only explanation of the dramatic life change of the disciples is the resurrection, along with a number of other very important points in our belief system. Let's look at Luke chapter 24. Take a look and notice that the angel is speaking to the women in verse 6. These women have bowed down, it says, put their faces to the ground. They're afraid, they're awed, they don't know what's going on. And the angel says in verse 6, he is not here, but has risen. Now remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. We'll see in a minute that they didn't understand that, but they remembered. He had told them about this. And they remembered his words, verse 8 and verse 9, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, that's the eleven disciples, minus Judas now, who had already hanged himself. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Interesting, isn't it, that the women are who the Lord chose first to reveal himself to? I think they had a, a, a simple faith. You know, men have to work everything out logically. And I think that's where the disciples are. They're hunkered down under a table in a locked room somewhere for fear of the Jews, right? And they know in their mind exactly what happened. He's dead. 
And like a beat reporter in Chicago or any other cop or detective on the street, they'd seen, they saw the dead body. They knew the body was dead. Joseph of Arimathea had handled the body. The women had watched. They could see the lifelessness of Christ. He was dead. They saw him put in a tomb. They saw the soldiers guarding the tomb. They knew that it was absolutely over. They couldn't sort it out. They thought they were next. Waiting in fear of the Jews that they would be the next ones taken out. Notice what it says. When the women told these things to the apostle, the end of verse 10, verse 11, they told the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. You're telling us fairy tales. It's not true. The NIV translates what the ESV puts in as idle tales as nonsense. So the women come and they say, the tomb is empty. Our Lord has arisen. The angel told us. And they say, nonsense. That's an idle tale. Because look what it says. And they did not believe them. They're devastated. Peter does, it says, run down there. And it says that he marveled at these things. The idea there is that he was wondering, what in the world is going on? Where did that body go? And he's wondering whether he's going to get in trouble for it, I assume. Because we know from parallel passages at this point, the lights hadn't turned on yet. So I ask myself, what explanation do we have? What explanation do we have for disciples who John's Gospel, chapter 20, tells us are cowering in the upper room, hiding for fear of the Jews, who do not believe, who say when they hear about the resurrection, it is nonsense. What explanation do we have as we turn to Acts chapter 4 for what happens just a few months later? What transformation has taken place? How do you explain this? Acts chapter 4 is a story about Peter and John. They had been going up to the temple to pray, and they saw a man who was lame. They healed him, and they got in heap big trouble from it. In fact, the religious leaders are so upset by it, they've incarcerated him. They put him in, in chains. They've held them, and they hold them overnight. They want to bring him into court, and they want to know under what power and authority did they have to heal this man. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? how an act of such kindness could be considered somehow criminal by these religious leaders. That's how blinding earthly religions are. Now let's read Acts chapter 4, and I want you very quickly to realize where the disciples are now. This is just uh, some months after our Lord has ascended back up into heaven. And as they were speaking to the people, Acts 4.1, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, and they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus what? What's their message? The resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. They had had a huge response to the message of the resurrection of Christ, and that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by your sin being forgiven, you someday can, can have a glorious resurrection and live eternally in heaven. That's their message. Let your eyes go to verses 8 through 10. 
And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, okay, they've gathered in front of all this, this kangaroo court, and the people hanging around. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? And then he says, then I'll tell you. In other words, if you've called us here and you've put us in bounds and you're having a trial here for our good deed of healing this crippled man because you want to know under what authority and what power we do this, then I'm going to tell you. That's what I'll tell you. By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you, all of you, verse 10, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by this man, Jesus, this man is standing before you. All right, I'm having a little bit of trouble putting this together. All right, just a few months before, they watched Jesus be crucified. They ran for their lives. A bunch of grown men look silly, locking themselves in a room. I picture them all hiding underneath the table. One of them peeping out the blinds, looking for the Jews to come and crucify them. The women come and tell them, hey, he's alive, the tomb is empty. And these disciples do not have any kind of fancy thoughts. They say, that's nonsense, that's idle tales, we don't believe. How is it that those who were afraid and hid are now wide open in public in one of the most public squares you could ever be in, in one of the most thriving cities of the day, standing up before the very religious leaders who put Christ on the cross, the very religious leaders from whom they hid in that, up, in that room? How is it then that they are proclaiming in an unashamed manner, I'll tell you how this happened. It happened through the power of Jesus Christ, who you crucified and killed, but who rose again from the dead. Ah, the lights have flashed on, haven't they? And they go on with their message and they look at him and they say to these religious guys who think that they're going to heaven and that no one else is. And they say, and salvation, verse 12, salvation is in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. That's a powerful verse, friend. There is no other name given among men under the heavens whereby you must be saved. How did this happen? Let's read on. Look at verse 13. Now when the boldness of Peter and John... Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. This is the religious leaders. And they recognized that they had been with, say it, Jesus. They didn't recognize that they had seen a corpse taken off a cross and put in a tomb and that they fancied up in themselves some kind of a spiritual, imaginary resurrection and that somehow they overcame their fear and they went to counseling and they all put together this thing that they're going to preach a Christ who they saw dead and buried. No, they believed it was nonsense. And now they're putting their lives on the line. In fact, they all lose their lives over it except for, for perhaps John. Because why? Because they had been with Jesus. And you can read about that in John's Gospel, chapter 20. We'll not turn there this morning. There they were in that upper room. And Jesus comes in without even opening the door. And there He is. And that's when later on, Thomas wasn't with them. And then later, Thomas wanted to put scientifically put Jesus to the test. 
Let me feel your hands. Let me feel your feet. It was indeed a resurrected, literal body of our Lord Jesus. He was alive. And they watched him go up into heaven. And it was that gospel that Jesus came, died for the sins of the world, was buried, rose again three days later according to the scripture. It was for that gospel that they then gave their very lives. You don't give your life for what you believe to be nonsense. You don't give your life for an idle fairy tale like a stupid rabbit that lays chocolate eggs. Arr. And I love to eat chocolate. I mean, think about it. Would you go around the world and put your life on the line for a bunny rabbit that lays chocolate eggs? That's what an idle tale is. You don't do that. But they had been transformed by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And they knew it was real. Listen to me. The only explanation for the transformation of the disciples is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our first explanation of the resurrection. It explains, number one, the tenacity of the disciples. The only explanation for the tenacity of the disciples is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's take just a minute and let's turn to Romans chapter 1. And let's recognize that the great explanation for the identity of Jesus himself as Messiah is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number two, the explanation of the identity of Jesus Christ is the resurrection. You know that the Apostle Paul was a persecutor of Christians. You do know that, right? It is so significant that when you turn in the New Testament and you open your Bible to the book of Romans and you recognize this is an incredible book filled with theology all about the defense for the faith in Jesus Christ, that you recognize that this was written by a guy named Paul who used to be Saul, who was a jihadist who went around killing Christians. And then the Lord knocks him down on the road to Damascus one day. And the resurrected Christ appears to him face to face. Paul encounters him and it transforms his entire life. He goes from being a murderous, threatening villain to the greatest preacher of the gospel in the New Testament apart from the Lord Jesus himself. In fact, he dies for this gospel of Jesus Christ for whom he killed other people for believing. That's an incredible testimony. You can read about it all in the last half, chapter, half of the book of Acts. But Paul's testimony in and of itself is one of the great explanations for the reality of the resurrection. The transformation of his life can only be explained by his contact with the resurrected Christ. He talks about that in his testimony in 2 Corinthians. He talks about it in Galatians. He talks about how the fact that he was privileged to see face to face in multiple occasions the resurrected Christ. And we don't know how that happened exactly. That because of those occurrences, that it is possible that that is why the Lord afflicted him in some way. Remember when he prayed three times that the Lord would remove this affliction from him. And he references that it is possible that the reason that has not been removed from his life is that he would not become proud of the fact that he was selected 
to, to meet with the resurrected Christ and to be empowered as an apostle to the Gentiles. Let's notice what he, how he opens up this book of theology. In fact, the entire book of Romans is really laced with the reality of the resurrection. He's going to give authentication for the identity of Christ through the resurrection right here in his opening remarks. He's going to talk about how he was raised for our justification in chapter 4. He's going to talk about how there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that's not a dead Christ. He's going to talk about the whole reality in Romans of offering your body as a living sacrifice unto God through Christ that he would know, make his will known. And all of this is points to the reality of a resurrected Christ. Let's read what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. And by the way, you do recognize that in the New Testament, it clearly points out that one of the requirements for being an apostle is that you would see the resurrection of Jesus. You saw Christ. You witnessed his ministry. You witnessed his resurrection body. Paul, an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he had promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God had done that concerning his son, verse three, who was descended from David, according to the flesh. He was of the line of David. Jesus was now notice verse four. As Paul introduces this book, he wants to make one thing really clear. And this son, verse three, who is of the line of David was declared, verse 4, to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by what? By His resurrection from the dead. Listen, but the first thing you read in this great book, filled with doctrine, filled with theology, is He wants to authenticate the very identity of Christ and explain it with one concept, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think that that is very helpful. How did God want to declare in front of all people everywhere that this was indeed his son? He did it through the power of the Holy Spirit who raised him from the dead. The resurrection speaks and explains the identity of who Jesus Christ really was. What is the explanation for the tenacity of the disciples? The resurrection. What is the explanation for the identity of our Lord Jesus Christ? The resurrection Let's add to his identity this word, number three this morning. How do we explain the credibility of our Lord's words? His credibility for what he said. Do you recall back in Luke 24 that when the angel encountered the women in the tomb and they bowed their face down before him and he speaks to them, do you notice that the first thing he said in Luke 24 where, he was given, where we read our account this morning, he said, do you remember that he said to you he will rise again? And it said they remembered. Remember I pointed that out. You see, you have to understand that in the life and ministry of our Lord for three years, our Lord repeatedly told his disciples that he would rise again, that he would die, that he would be buried and that he would rise again. Now, let's put this into everyday life here. What do you do with somebody at work or around the church or around your neighborhood who's telling everybody that they're going to die, but they're going to rise again? I mean, sometimes it kind of makes, was it Ted Williams, the baseball player whose body is frozen somewhere that he might rise again? You got to admit when you read that, you think they're a little wasting money, don't you? I mean, when you walk around 
And you start telling people, hey, yo, I'm going to die. And I am going to die. You know that. I don't know when. I, I hope I can take care of my family and my church for a while. But if I do die, just have a big picnic or something. Have a hog roast and a big sing, sing along about heaven or something, right? If we believe what we believe in the resurrection, I'll be better off by far, man. Okay? And I won't have to clean my garage. <laughs> Rich Beto will have to do that or somebody. But you're walking around and you're telling people you're going to die, but you're going to rise again. Listen, they want to take you away and give you drugs to calm you down. You're an idiot. You're the village idiot. And listen, Jesus of Nazareth would be nothing more than the village idiot if he didn't do what he said. And so the the veracity, the credibility of his message rested upon. In fact, he staked it entirely upon the fact that he would rise again. Let's look up a couple of these verses. We have a few minutes. Luke chapter 18. Look at Luke chapter 18. And look what it says. Matthew, Mark, Luke 18. Not far from where we read our scripture this morning. This is, on one occasion, it is the final occasion in Luke's Gospel where our Lord says, it's the third time of three times where our Lord tells the disciples that He's going to die, but He's going to rise again. I mean, this is like, you talk about nonsense. Because dead people don't rise again. Verse 31, Luke 18. And taking the twelve, He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. That's relatively easy to understand, isn't it? I mean, I can understand that. You can understand that. Notice what verse 34 says. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. You know, I take it in two ways. On the one hand, they expected this kingdom to meet their own expectations. Do you ever expect God to live up to your expectations? And then you figure out that isn't at all what God is up to. They still hadn't got to that point. They were still looking for their thrones. They were still looking for the the opportunity to sit at the right hand of the Father. They still had their imagination rolling. So they didn't listen. On the other hand, it it implies at the least in the passage, doesn't it, that there was a spiritual fog there. That God, through Christ, was withholding, allowing them somehow to have this experience where they would be utterly devastated at the foot of the cross and then be able to witness in that upper room in John 20, in the room where they were hiding, the reality of the resurrected Christ, that it would all come together another day, another time. Uh, We have this in other places. If you're taking notes, you could write down John's Gospel, chapter 2, Verses 19 to 22. John 2, 19 to 22. That was early on in our Lord's ministry. And that was where he was accused. um, He was confronting the religious leaders. And that's when he said, you tear down this temple. And in three days, I'll build it up again. 
And they guffawed and I think spit in the dirt and turned back at him and looked and said, it took 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to do it in three days? And he was talking about his resurrection. They didn't get it. Matthew records this in chapter 12, verse 40. Chapter 16, verse 21. Chapter 26, verse 30. It's repeated in our New Testament. Our Lord regularly said it. If he said it and he never did it, how credible would he be? Let me ask you this question. Is a dead Messiah a glorious Messiah? Is there a reason that we worship Christ today instead of Muhammad? Is there a reason that we're not followers of Sun Myung Moon or Joseph Smith? It's because we have a resurrected Christ. He said he would do it. He did it. And he has a credible message. And I believe it. The only explanation for the tenacity of the disciples is the resurrection. The best explanation, according to Paul in 1.4 of Romans, concerning the identity of Jesus Christ is the resurrection. The argument for the credibility of the message of Jesus Christ comes to the resurrection. He said it. He would do it. He prophesied it. He fulfilled his word. He showed that he was God and not man. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Can we glance there very quickly? 1 Corinthians 15. And notice as the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian believers, explains the gospel to them. The word gospel means good news. 1 Corinthians 15, notice what it says in verse 3. I'll back up in verse 1 because he says, Brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you. 1 Corinthians 15. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. It's our conviction. It's how we're saved. If you hold fast to this word I preached to you, unless you've believed in vain, don't peel out on this gospel. Don't try to find another gospel. It's like in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. said, if anybody comes to you, and they try preaching another gospel to you, even if it's an angel... Does that ring any bells about a main religious system around that has a big building right on the beltway and it has a gold angel up on the spire because the angel Moroni came with another gospel? Paul says, don't believe it. In fact, that's anathema. That's to be damned. It's a damnable gospel. Only believe this gospel. And here's the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. It's what transformed his life. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And He was buried. And that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And then He says, most of who are still alive. In other words, go ask Him if you don't believe Me. Others have fallen asleep. They have died in Christ. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Listen. The integrity of the gospel rests upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, it is no gospel at all without the resurrection. The tenacity of the disciples, the identity of Christ, the credibility of his message, the integrity of the gospel itself. A dead Messiah would be no Messiah at all. He had to rise again. 
Finally, let's conclude in Romans chapter 5. I know I've turned you in your scriptures a little bit. I hope you have joy in that and not frustration. What a privilege to have a Bible and what a privilege to study it together as God's people on resurrection morning. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 are somewhat familiar, but I want to make sure that you understand that the reality of your salvation has everything to do with the resurrection. The reality of your salvation has everything to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul says. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, look what it says, raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Now, to be saved, you have to be lost. You ever been lost? Um, I will admit something to you um, because I'm so secure in my manliness, but I have a real problem with directions. If I come visit you for the first time and I pull in your driveway, when I leave, I always want to turn the opposite direction. And so I have learned to appreciate and listen to my help meet. And if Janet's with me, I will regularly, you ask her, I will regularly say, which way are we supposed to turn when we're leaving? So I, I just don't, I messed up. I do pretty well way out in the woods and in the mountains, but when I'm driving around town, I don't do well. I think I'm supposed to be Daniel Boone. I was just born out of time or something. <laughs> just a new direction. Trusting yourself for your direction. Look at the Apostle Paul says here that if you believe in your heart and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, you can believe something to be true that's not true. Like I can believe it's the right direction, but it feels right. I wonder if this morning you believe that you're saved, but you're really heading the wrong direction. It feels like you're going the right direction, but you're really not. Because you haven't come underneath the authority of Scripture. And maybe it's never dawned on you that you have to come to the cross where you admit your sinfulness and you recognize that Jesus qualified to pay the debt of sin. He was buried, but then He rose again to show that it was completed. And He was raised for our justification. He was raised for our salvation. And by faith in that act, you are saved. Listen, you can't believe anything else for your salvation. It's the wrong direction. It's the wide road that leads to destruction. It feels good to be honest. It's the wrong road. Look what he says. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. All people. This is a message for all people. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what is this believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth thing? And notice what it is. Listen, he says, if you believe in your heart, that's where conviction is formed, isn't it? That's where you are convinced of something. I believe with my heart. I believe in the core of my, of my command central station of, of the, of the uh, well-being uh, computer center of my life where I make all my decisions. I believe it in my heart. 
that Jesus died on the cross for my sin and that he's the Lord and that he rose again. And I believe it so much that I'm like Peter and John, I'm not afraid to confess it. It doesn't mean I have to turn into a preacher. But if somebody says to you, hey, how do you know you're getting to heaven? You know, like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation, Paul said, Romans 1.16. It's because it's a conviction that you believe in your heart that Jesus is your Lord. Why? He carried your sin to the cross. And you all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. You can't pay the wages of your sin without death. That's eternal death, separation from God, eternal torment. It's a horrible reality. Jesus cuts in, takes your sin, goes to the cross, satisfies the demands of a holy God, and all you have to do is come in faith and believe it in your heart. Becomes that conviction. This is my Savior. You know, the world mocks that message. The reason I'm not embarrassed of that message is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, Lee Strobel uh, continued to write in his introduction, and it was kind of funny. He said, um, I thought that Christians had this imaginary fairy tale belief like a parent who didn't understand who their kid really was. Christians don't really understand who Jesus was, that he was just another prophet, so forth. And then Lee Strobel says, and then the unthinkable happened. You know what happened? His wife accepted Christ as her Savior. And so Lee Strobel went to work as a naturalist, a scientist, an an atheist, with the principles of his trade and his craft as an investigative journalist. And he was going to prove that the grave wasn't empty because of the resurrection. And guess what he found out? He was wrong. And there came a point in time when Lee Strobel believed in his heart that Jesus was Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Have you believed that yet? Easter morning is a great time to look and live. Look to Jesus and live that if you believe in your heart and then you're not ashamed to say it, I am a Christian today. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer, shall we please? I wonder if you recognize your sinfulness today. And that the wages of that sin is death. And I wonder if you recognize that out of God's love and kindness, He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sin. Is it part of the core of your being? Do you believe that in faith that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, was buried, and He rose again according to the Scriptures? You believe that in your heart, and you're willing to say it with your mouth, you will be saved. It's essential to our salvation. The resurrection is. Friends, never be embarrassed of Jesus. Don't be embarrassed of his resurrection. It's the key to our salvation. I'd love to meet you at the door. Right now you can pray. You can tell God that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. You can put your faith and trust in him. If you do that, I'd love for you to meet me at the door and tell me. I'd love to encourage you. And so, Father, you know our hearts and our minds and you know our needs today. And I just pray that you would convict those who need conviction. Father, embolden those of us who've been following Christ for many years. Help us never to be embarrassed of the name of Jesus. Thank you for our great salvation that is only explained through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, praying your blessing on our week ahead. Amen.